The state of Arizona actually got called on the carpet by CMS because we were not handing out citations as rapidly as other states. And the state of Arizona actually had to submit a plan of correction to CMS as to why we were not handing out citations as some of the other states. So they really were looking for those citations um, in an effort to show that they were doing their job, the surveyors. How did the COVID-19 pandemic uncover a broken nursing home system here in the United States that's in dire need of repair and the heroic staff fighting to make things right? Let's talk all about it with author Dr. Buffy Lloyd Krejci, one of the foremost authorities on infection prevention and control in nursing homes and long-term care facilities right here on this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is all about you, your professional and personal development, your career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm here to share education, diatribes, ideas, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people out there. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you'd like to help people find the show, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and consider becoming a patron at Patreon. It really helps support the show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. I appreciate and love my patrons and all of you listeners and reviewers out there. And like I said, at the top of the hour, we are here with Dr. Buffy Lloyd Krejci And Dr. Buffy, as you're often referred to, or Dr. Buffy the Germ Slayer, you are one of the foremost authorities on infection prevention and control in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. And there are a lot of nurses and healthcare professionals who listen to this show, and many of them might work in such facilities. Many might have friends and patients and clients and family members in those facilities. And you know what I realized in this moment is that you or me or any of those people or anybody we know could end up in one of those facilities. So we all have a stake in this particular system. So one of my first questions for you is, how did you first become so fascinated and interested and on a a driven mission to work on this particular problem? Well, thanks so much for having me, Keith. And, you know, as you said, I'm so passionate about long-term care. It really started in a way that maybe perhaps many of the listeners start their journey in long-term care is if they have a loved one in this healthcare system. And when I was 19, both my grandparents, whom I refer to as Mimi and Didi, they entered this healthcare system and ultimately both passed away in long-term care. It would be many years later, actually in 2015, that I was brought back into the nursing home healthcare system by working on a national level to reduce healthcare-associated infections, which transferred over from my acute care training I became part of a national collaborative to support nursing homes in reducing an infection known as C. diff. And it was then when I learned that there's millions of infections within this healthcare setting and that lead to hundreds of thousands of deaths every year and that we really weren't doing a lot about it. And I was shocked and it really captivated my heart and has set me on this path and this mission to create a safer, healthier environment for not only our loved ones, but our healthcare workers. Thank you. And you mentioned Mimi and Didi in your book, you tell the story. And so many people probably have a story just like yours, like you said. And from your bio, I see that there are an estimated 3 million infections leading to more than 380,000 deaths every year in the nursing home industry in the United States. Has that number been climbing, decreasing, or has it been steady for, you know, let's say the last 10 or 20 or 30 years? So this data came out about 
10 plus years ago. It actually was data that was extrapolated from hospitals um, and um, that hospital, you know, the infections coming from the nursing homes. It is only estimates. And the reason I don't have an actual definitive answer if they're increasing or decreasing or staying the same is because that's part of the problem is we're not on a national level actually collecting, tracking, trending, and identifying the true burden of healthcare-associated infections within this healthcare setting. I, I was just talking about it today. I talked about it yesterday as part of public health initiatives that we've got to understand the true burden of these infections if we ever hope to reduce and and change um, what's what's occurring within the facilities. Right. And your book is called Broken, How the Global Pandemic Uncovered a Nursing Home System in Need of Repair and the Heroic Staff Fighting for Change. So that global pandemic to which you refer is the COVID-19 pandemic. And you talk about how it changed everything. And many of us have heard the story of the Seattle nursing home where things kind of caught fire in that first quarter of 2020. So can you talk a little bit about your, basically your thesis of what happened with COVID-19 and why, why this blew up and all of a sudden we were all paying attention? Yeah, you know, COVID-19 isn't, isn't the problem is what I say. It, it truly is the catalyst and it, it uncovered it and shine, has shined the light on already an existing issue within this industry. The, when, when I first heard about SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 infection in China, quite frankly, I was um, a little upset. I was upset because of the the known statistics of one to 3 million infections, just as you mentioned, 380,000 deaths that were already occurring, that's over a thousand people dying every day. And there wasn't much attention. And so I was angry that all of a sudden we were paying attention to this unknown virus across the world. When, and then part of me, to be honest, I was, I was scared because I knew that if it came into the nursing homes, we wouldn't be prepared knowing that we already were lacking robust infection prevention and control practices. I knew that we were not equipped to handle such a a fast spreading airborne virus. And so what we saw in Seattle was really what would later occur throughout our entire country was the nursing home that the, the Kirkland facility um, they had their first outbreak. It ran through the building like wildfire. That's probably the number one description of how COVID has impacted our nursing homes. It, it, it travels like wildfire still is occurring to this day. And they were unprepared. They didn't even know what it was yet. We didn't even have proper testing for it at that time. So they were operating quite blindly. They didn't necessarily, they didn't have the PPE they needed and half of their staff were out sick. Also a common indicator of what would, would be occurring in our, in our healthcare system across the country is our, our sick healthcare workers. What the public doesn't realize within this situation is the, the administrator of this facility had called the CDC and asked for a strike team, which means they would come on site and they would offer boots on the ground support that before they could come on site, uh, CMS federal surveyors actually showed up to conduct a targeted infection control survey. The the nursing home administrator begged them to leave and they refused. She called the governor and asked the governor to have them leave and they refused because a targeted infection control survey takes um, an enormous amount of time away from patient care. You need to provide a lot of paperwork. They didn't already have the staff. Ultimately, this facility was fined $611,000 in citations for not implementing effective infection control during this this crisis. Um, This is what set the stage for our government response for the rest of the country for our nursing homes. And that's important to talk about because that in and of itself has created so much harm and challenges with our nursing homes. Um, And I would say didn't really help a lot. 
So that was kind of where we started. I also want to say that ultimately the, the Seattle or the Kirkland facility ultimately fought those fees, the 611,000 and one, and they did not have to um, pay civil uh, monetary penalties. That's great. Cause it sounds like almost that they were treated as, I'm not quite sure what word to use, scapegoat, or I'm not quite sure where to go with that. But the story is is moving and frightening and enraging on many levels. And can you talk a little bit about this punitive style of surveying in general, like the, the survey industry and healthcare? And in your book, you describe some very disturbing uh, facts about the ways in which surveyors are hired and trained and or not trained and the impact that has on our healthcare system, whether long-term care or not long-term care. I know you have strong feelings about this, and I think this is really important for people to hear. Well, it's important because it's a it's not talked about and the public doesn't necessarily understand and even within healthcare we don't all understand i didn't even understand the level of it until i actually worked in the middle of this pandemic and it was really through hearing the same story over and over again it didn't matter if i was in arizona or texas or michigan i heard the same story and i that that was part of what compelled me to write this book was i felt that this voice, this needed to be told, this story needed to be told. And so uh, as a little context, nursing homes, long-term care, their primary payer is Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services or CMS, um, Medicare, 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 Medicaid, excuse me. And those are two primary. And then the third primary payer is um, either self-pay. Really, we don't have much insurance. And so any any organization, healthcare organization that has any type of um, support, you know, that is through the state or federal healthcare organization that accepts Medicare or Medicaid patients will have an annual survey by their state surveyors, you know, every year. And so this is normal. This is for hospitals. This is outpatient um, care centers. This is, this is a typical process. Well, all of those surveys, all the annual surveys were canceled in March of 2020 as the result of COVID-19. And in an effort to support healthcare workers and the healthcare industry manage this, this, this crisis, except for nursing homes. Nursing homes were actually targeted and assigned to have surveyors come on site during their outbreaks and identify anything wrong that was going on within their facility. In fact, in June of 2020, CMS was funded $80 million. They funded the surveyors $80 million to conduct targeted infection control surveys. And to those that have loved ones in this healthcare setting, you could say, good, we need to find out what's wrong. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure our loved ones are being taken care of, right? Right. That makes total sense, right? Okay. Well, what happened was in an effort to demonstrate that those funds were spent properly, the best way that you can demonstrate those funds are spent is by handing out citations, civil monetary penalties. And it became this gotcha, this I'm going to nitpick and find little things wrong. And I want to remind the viewers, this was during the darkest hours for these nursing homes. This was when they were in the middle of an outbreak, when their staff were gone when they didn't have the supplies they needed. And to demonstrate this further, the state of Arizona, and I interviewed the bureau chief in my book, the state of Arizona actually got called on the carpet by CMS because we were not handing out citations as rapidly as other states. 
And the state of Arizona actually had to submit a plan of correction to CMS as to why we were not handing out citations as some of the other states. So they really were looking for those citations um, in an effort to show that, that they were doing their job, the surveyors. So the citations end up being what measures the quote unquote success of the initiative of the program. And you even have a chapter in your book called Gotcha. It's chapter nine. And you say that the nature of the regulatory process during the pandemic didn't help those battling the disease in these care facilities. It's an unproductive system that doesn't promote resident safety and is no longer collaborative, but it's a hindrance, not a help. So like you said, this was the darkest hour of the pandemic when things were blowing up, they were on fire. Nobody really knew what was happening. Everything was changing every moment. We all know the CDC was a little bit behind the eight ball and, you know, they had some work to do to catch up. Right. So in, in your estimation then, what is it about this system that also makes it not work? You talk in your book about the way that surveyors are trained or not trained and who the surveyors are. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because everybody out there listening, I'm sure, has worked somewhere, if they're a healthcare provider, where it's like, oh, the Joint Commission's coming, the Joint Commission's coming. So what happens when people get trained and then they're kind of sent out on this mission? What does that all look like? Yeah. And, and what, I'll, what I'll start with is that in long-term care, we don't have Joint Commission. Joint Commission is not a governing body. It is an accrediting body and they are more collaborative. What I'm referring to is our state and federal surveyors for the regulatory division, licensing division. A surveyor can make or break a nursing home. They can, they can, they can uh, shut one down in a heartbeat. And, and I talk in my book about the need for reform. I am not opposed to regulation. It is needed. Before we had regulation, there were many unsafe practices. I, I am a proponent for it. However, the way it's being delivered now is not supporting the nursing homes. Anybody, <laughs> you don't have to be a nurse to be a surveyor. You can be a social worker. You can be a dietitian. Um, there's requirements of having you know, a bachelor's degree. But you don't have to be a clinical person. And the training, and I, and I interviewed a former bureau chief that discussed what the training used to be like and how it was in person and it was very robust. And then you were mentored for a long time before you were actually able to go out onto your own site visits for the survey. And it's just not like that anymore. It's an online course. Um, you do have to pass an, an exam but you don't necessarily have that mentoring um, like they used to. And just the amount of training isn't, isn't at the level. Plus the regulations have grown significantly over the years. And so to a surveyor's credit, it's very difficult for them to actually um, be very thorough and to evaluate everything that they truly need to in the time they need to. Um, and so there, then it gets to be where you kind of cherry pick and kind of find things that are a little bit nitpicky and it's, it's very just challenging for the staff, um, when they're, they're trying to do a really good job and maybe you get a citation because you didn't disinfect a pen when you give it to somebody else, or, you know, just, just a practice that human nature that may not necessarily cause harm, but it's easy to provide a citation on it. Right. And I think, is it in your book, do you mention the citation of not sterilizing a pen passed between two people? Uh, I, I don't know if it's in my book, but, but you know, I talk about it often because yeah. I literally, when I had a facility tell me that, I like my mouth just dropped open. I'm like, this is just ridiculous. And to be honest, I heard stories of that everywhere. You know, it was just, it was so hard to manage this, this, the outbreaks of COVID in their buildings. I mean, we had nursing homes duct taping garbage bags together. We had 
you know, community members sewing face masks together out of, you know, old shirts. And I mean, and then to have a surveyor come in and, and nitpick and tag you mm-hmm. in for a response that nobody was prepared for. So to, to enhance um, a survey process, you know, to implement this was just really inappropriate. And I, and I don't know if scapegoat is the right word either, but I think it was in an effort for maybe CMS to say, well, we're doing something about it, you know? And um, there was other support CMS did as far as quality. They had the quality improvement organizations providing some technical assistance, but it, it was really it, that that punishing part was very was what I saw as very damaging within the industry. And a lot of people left the industry actually as the result of that, because nobody, nobody wants to go to work and, and feel like, you know, we're, we're just going to get torn apart or blamed mm-hmm. for, for this, these outbreaks. Yeah. And that's a sad statement because we need people in that industry. We don't need huge numbers of attrition from that industry. And from your standpoint, you come from the point of view of having a doctor of public health with a specialization in epidemiology and you have a master's in biomedical informatics and you have a bachelor's of science in applied mathematics and you've worked in many many different settings you've been a quality improvement advisor on the healthcare acquired infections with um, the health services advisory group you've worked with native american uh, tribes you've done a great deal of work with the CDC, with Doctors Without Borders. You've worked on the Arizona Emergency Preparedness Infection Control Grant. So you've you've been around and you've seen a lot. And obviously this is of great interest to you. You have a doctorate in public health. So this is where your passion lies, obviously. And the book demonstrates that passion on every page. And first I want to say about the book that it's incredibly well-written. It's an excellent book. I think everyone should read it. I think it should be required reading in public health programs for those who work in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. It is an excellent book. And I really think healthcare providers need their eyes open to this and the public as well. And when it comes to the squeaky wheels, so who are the squeakiest wheels other than yourself in this particular space? You know, who's, who's clamoring about long-term care, safety, et cetera, right now? You know, who are the big players and the people who are most invested in making this better? Well, I'm very grateful for other advocates. We have, um, you know, on the healthcare side, we have ACA. Um, for the their nursing home association, they're the national, um, the healthcare association. And then there's always state associations in every state. They do a lot of advocacy work. They, um, you know, go to Capitol Hill and, and speak with rep- legislative re- representatives. I was fortunate enough to go in June as well. Um, there's, you know, leading age is also an advocate group. Then you have um, Nadana. It's a, also a group. So these are our advocacy groups that are, are working hard with the nursing homes, and they they will also speak out on the other side, which I do mention in my book. I really wanted my book to be, you know, it's not just about healthcare workers, but it's also about the patients. So there's a good mix in there. But you have the patient advocacy groups, um, patient consumer group, and you know, sometimes the loudest voices are those that have a loved one in nursing home and something terrible has gone wrong. And absolutely, they need their voices heard. And absolutely, we need to fix any situation that is, is not, that is, that is harmful to our residents. Um, but I don't see a lot of voices speaking up within the nursing homes themselves. And again, from my experience and what I've been told is, we don't want survey on our back. We don't want a target on our back. We want to lay low. We want to just mind our own business. And even in my book, many of the people I interviewed asked to keep their names anonymous just so that they wouldn't have any type of target. And that's just unfortunate because I think collectively we need to speak up about what is challenging and what's damaging for our staff because we don't have healthy, well-taken-care-of-staff 
your loved ones will not be healthy and well taken care of. I mean, it just, you cannot have one without the other. So we really have to invest in our staff and speak up and help them to deliver that care that your loved ones absolutely deserve. Right. And if, if consumer groups are speaking up, but the people who work in those facilities don't speak up because they're afraid of retribution and they're afraid of, like you said, having a target on their back, it seems like that's an enormous problem. And the, that circles me back in my mind to this punitive aspect of the whole system. Is that really the crux of the matter here to a large extent, this, this punitive approach to this entire way of going about it? You know, I have mixed feelings in the sense of I, I go on site to many, many nursing homes every month and I see things that I don't like and that need to be changed. And, you know, does it take a surveyor coming in and citing them to change it? Sometimes it does. So what we really need is, you know, funding towards collaboration, towards support, towards more on-site help. We need to, instead of investing, okay, for example, the Biden administration called for 500 million for the survey process earlier this year. And my ask then is, why do we have to have $500 million to have more surveys? Okay, what if we used half of that money for surveys and the other half for collaborative support? You know, like, let's stop just thinking we're going to punish, we're going to punish, we're going to punish and start saying, how can we reach our hand out to them and help them and support them? And then if the, and then if the help isn't received and the follow-up isn't completed, well, then it makes sense for the punitive nature. Right. But, but we've got to help those that are, are delivering this care. We just simply do. Thank you. And in the second half of the show, We'll definitely talk about some solutions and we'll talk about your next book that is going to be very solutions oriented. That's called Breakthrough. So we'll get to that in a little bit. And as soon as we come back, I'd love to have you read a selection from Broken. So does that sound like a good place to go once we come back from the break? Yeah, that's great. Great. So please stay with us for this episode of the Nurse Keith Show with Dr. Buffy Lloyd Krejci, the author of Broken, and we'll be right back for the second half of the episode. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Buffy Lloyd Krejci. She's the author of a book called Broken, How the Global Pandemic Uncovered a Nursing Home System in Need of Repair and the Heroic Staff Fighting for Change. So Dr. Buffy, Dr. Buffy the Germ Slayer, as you're popularly <laughs> known, I would mm -hmm. love to have people out in the audience hear a little bit of the book in your voice. So could you read the selection that you've chosen for us? That would be such an honor to have you read that here. Sure. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, I'm going to read a little bit from chapter one. November 25th, 2018, Baltimore, Maryland. My heart is racing. I can't get to my computer fast enough. I need to ring an alarm bell. Let government officials, the world, know about the atrocities I've discovered in a local nursing home. I know that once the right people know what's going on, they'll race to remedy the situation and help the facility. I'm here in Baltimore as a consultant for a public health organization. Concerned about the care for her 94-year-old Aunt Nanny was receiving, Crystal, the organization's administrative assistant, has asked me to visit the Potomac Health and Rehabilitation Center, where Nanny lives. Crystal knew of my expertise in infection prevention and control in nursing homes and trusted my opinion of her aunt's current care home. We headed for the nursing home on a cold autumn day something I, a longtime Phoenix resident, wasn't accustomed to. We planned to attend a family council meeting, a perfect opportunity to visit and hear the concerns of family members of the facility's residents. We arrived after a 45-minute drive. 
It was after hours, but the doors were still open for the meeting. The smell of urine smacked me in the face as soon as I walked in the door. 20 or 30 years ago, a person might have expected this rank odor in a nursing home, but it's much less common today. I introduced myself to a tall blonde seated at the reception desk who surprised me with the news that she was the nursing home's administrator. Didn't she notice the smell? I explained I was there to support my friend Crystal, that I was an infection control expert and would participate in the meeting. As I handed her my card, I assumed she'd feel delighted to take advantage of my knowledge. I really thought she would welcome outside support. Little did I know. The meeting room was full. Among those there there to represent their loved ones was Crystal's 92-year-old mother, Violet, seated in a wheelchair. She traveled across town on two buses every day to visit her 94-year-old sister, Nanny. Crystal explained to the group that I was there to listen, learn, and hopefully help. The meeting started with a lot of legal jargon about recent state legislative actions, but I snapped to full attention when talk turned to the recent outbreak of scabies, a highly contagious infection that causes itching from mites that live beneath the skin. The council members, suspecting a cover-up, complained that this five-star facility hadn't notified the families of this outbreak. They argued that it was the mother of a resident and the family council president, Twyla Bridges, who'd contacted the state's Office of Healthcare Quality and reported an urgent need for help. It took a patient advocate to ensure that every resident was treated for the scabies. Sadly, for one resident, it was too late. He'd scratched himself badly enough that his skin became infected. He developed sepsis and died. I sat in shock as I heard the description of this tragedy about a human life that, it could, that could have been easily spared with the early identification and treatment of the infection. As the meeting continued, council members reported other potentially fatal infectious outbreaks, such as Klebsiella pneumonia, Clostridioides difficile infection, and influenza. One daughter told of how her mother continued to get urinary tract infections, but she was also immunocompromised woman worried that the condition would lead to sepsis and cause her mother's death. I was frantically taking notes, trying not to miss one word. What could I do now? What could I do to help? The family members mentioned they'd already contacted their ombudsman, appointed by the facility to record complaints, and even called on Maryland Senator Jim Rose Peppa for help. The families had taken these actions, yet had been largely ignored until this point. Crystal and I needed to leave the meeting to visit Nanny while she was still awake. As we left, I made a sincere promise to the group to do everything I could to help. The frustration in one family member's outburst startled me. That's what they all say. You're not going to help. Nobody ever helps. Others stepped in to quiet her to keep her from offending me, but I felt her pain. Her cries had gone unanswered. To her, I was just another voice promising to make a change. I let her vent. When she was done, I reassured her that I'd recently quit my job expressly to assist in solving this problem. I knew she didn't believe me. Why would she? So far, no one had supported her. I left the meeting feeling heartbroken. Walking down the hall besides Crystal, I noticed there were no hand sanitizing dispensers in the hallway. How did anyone practice hand hygiene? There were none in Nanny's room either. Two nurses came in to provide care to Nanny's roommate. Neither washed their hands before or after providing care. They never do, Crystal told me. There was a sink in the restroom, not a suitable place to practice consistent hand hygiene, but it went unused. No wonder these infectious outbreaks were occurring. They weren't implementing basic infection control practices. How was the nursing home staff passing over something so fundamental? I made an instant connection with Nanny, a strong, feisty African-American woman. She was in continual pain, though the arthritis in her hip was unbearable. Crystal and I gave her a back and hip rub to ease the pain. Crystal told her that I was there to help. Nanny looked at me with the conviction and said, good, we need it. She then offered me a piece of her much-valued bubblegum, a simple yet meaningful gesture that solidified our new friendship. Wow. Thank you, Buffy. That, that story has both the personal and the professional woven through it. 
you know, that's, it shows your conviction as a professional, as a public health expert who wanted to do something to help. And also it shows your, your compassion as a human being that you bring to your work, that this isn't just about numbers. It's just not about infections. It's about people. It's about people's lives and families and quality of care. And obviously from our conversation during the first half of the episode, you care about the staff too. And you, you care about the punitive nature of a lot of the survey process, but obviously there are facilities that need such processes. So moving forward from here, in terms of solutions, where where is your mind going? And I know you have a new book that's in process right now. What are you thinking in terms of solutions? What do we have to come together to make happen? Well, I love talking about the solutions. That gets me really excited. And it's a heck of a lot more fun to write about than the problem because yes, it gives me hope. And, 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 you know, hopefully it'll give the readers hope as well. Um, because there are solutions and I'm not the inventor of these solutions. They're actually solutions that are already out there and that we can take advantage of. So let's start with the training of the staff. Every nursing home in the country, every skilled nursing facility is required to have a part-time, at least a part-time infection preventionist on site. So this is good news because it means that there is a dedicated person who will be working to prevent infections within that facility. It sounds good, but in practice, what happens, especially during our our staffing shortages right now, is they often get pulled to the floor to work the med cart. And so we really need to dedicate, we need to make it a priority that we have them actually as the trained infection preventionist, that they are nurtured and they're fostered and mentored to grow up and really learn this trade and learn this specialty because it's so vast. I mean, infection prevention and control is a huge special specialization. I'm proud to say that APIC is the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology have are in the process of rolling out an actual targeted board certification for long-term care infection preventionist. And this demonstrates how valuable this healthcare worker is and that it really needs to be that specialized role. So that's number one. We have to have that trained specialist within the facilities. Okay. So that's the facility-oriented solution, which sounds like a really important one that maybe somehow can be regulated that it's full-time and they don't get pulled to the floor and they have to work the med cart, et cetera, because it's so important. And the COVID-19 pandemic underscored this like with with consequences that we all know are, are real. Now, what about consumers? What can consumers do? What are their um, places of recourse and how can their voices get heard? I know they can talk to legislators and that sort of thing. Where do you tell consumers to turn? So I, in the back of my book, on the last page, 188, I actually have a place, um, ipcwell.com forward slash consumer hyphen resources, that we have a whole list of ideas and checklists and resources for the consumer that they can, you know, that they learn what it means to attend a patient council family meeting. Like I was attending with, with uh, Crystal's aunt nanny. I went to attend this meeting, you know, getting involved in your loved one's care, attending the, the family council meetings, attending the care plans. When my Mimi and Didi were in nursing homes, I didn't attend any care planning and I was their primary beneficiary. I didn't know about a care plan. Maybe they didn't have it then. I don't know because I didn't, I was never invited. Yeah. So getting involved at the facility level is one thing that the loved ones of the, the residents can do and residents can be involved in these processes as well. Can't they? 
Absolutely. I mean, it is patient-centered care and we want them, if they're able to be involved in their care, in every aspect of their care. And so that can be something, and that will be, um, I will write about that either in this next book or a following one, but Mm -hmm. I have at least two more, but, um, but really getting involved and, and being a part of that. And that's how you can decide what care facility is best for you too, is how much they involve you in that, in those decision-making processes. But I do want to state this really importantly, and this is what I hear from the healthcare workers as family members, see where you can potentially even help the healthcare workers themselves, or in a sense, I'm not talking like clinical, but many times because of the bad reputations that nursing homes have or the bad media that they get, the family members are on guard and they're, they're looking with a scrutinous eye and, you know, their tone is very harsh to the staff. And, you know, I've, I've witnessed that. I witnessed that last week. And, you know, what if we came in and were a little bit more compassionate with the staff and, you know, showed a little bit more love and understanding to the fact that maybe they're caring for 20 residents and, you know, and I mean, like partnering with the facility and seeing where you can maybe volunteer even, or, or, you know, support with your loved one's care. That all sounds very prudent and definitely good food for thought for those of us who have loved ones in a facility. And let's talk about Breakthrough for a second, your new book. So it's going to highlight best practices that I'm assuming are already in use. And is it also going to project into the future for what's possible? Yes. So I am so excited about this. I knew when I was writing Broken that this was not the end of the story. I mean, it just couldn't be. And in my travels across the country, I have a unique opportunity of being able to see some of the best nursing home practices you could imagine. And I, I get so excited about that because when I can say I wouldn't mind at all if my love, in fact, I would be honored to have my loved one receive care in this facility that needs to be told that story needs to be showcased. And so that's what I'm writing about our, our different nursing home models that are out there, like the greenhouse model or the home-like model with the caveat of implementing strong infection control practices in that type of healthcare model. It is possible. And also, yes, looking at even practices of, um, you know, other resources that are out there, like um, how to train training for staff, even, you know, um, stronger trainings for environmental services or housekeepers and, um, you know, even, the like infection control practices, even more training for that. I look into really showcasing how we can make this industry more successful. And I haven't really dove into this too much, but I know I need to talk about, you know, we need accountability for where our healthcare dollars are spent um, and making sure they actually go to the frontline staff because we can have all this great funding that comes in but if it's not going to actually care for our residents, then it's it's not being utilized in the best best capacity. So I'm having a good time interviewing people at this point is what I'm with the process I'm in and starting to put put this book together. That's wonderful. I really look forward to that. And let's have you back on the show when breakthrough comes out and we can continue the conversation and talk about you know, where you see this all going and all of these solutions that you're, that you're bringing to light. How does that sound? That sounds great. I'd be great. I'd be so grateful to come back. Me Me too. It'd be a privilege. Now, where can people find the book? Where's the best place to go? Yeah, Amazon. Um, it is in Kindle format as well as paperback and hardback. And so you can get that on Amazon. It's a great place to be able to order it. Okay. And is there anywhere people should look for you, a website, LinkedIn? Is there anywhere, you know, out on the interwebs where you tend to hang out? Sure. Yep. I have uh, my, my website is ipcwell.com. 
And uh, yes, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Buffy Lloyd Krejci. So you can definitely find out. We post a lot of updated information on on the social media platforms, Um, training videos. I love to to be able to create training videos for staff, um, some tips and, you know, easy solutions to help them do their job more effectively and, and in a fun way. Great. Well, we'll have links to all of those in the show notes, including Amazon, where people can click and just go order the book. And my last few questions are questions that I asked all of my guests. They're, they're not directly related to what we've been talking about. They're more just about you and the way that you think. And are you game for a few questions? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The the, the first question is, how do you define success personally and or professionally? I'm very relational. And so, I mean, it, to me, success is when I've put a smile on somebody's face, when I feel as though I have contributed in a way that makes their life a little easier, whether that's even professionally or personally. Um, when I feel, when I, I just see that maybe I've contributed in a way that makes somebody else's load a little bit lighter. That that is success for me. Hmm, thank you. That's lovely. Here's another question that relates to that in a certain respect, and this is about someone else. So could you name, or you could also just describe if you don't want to name them, one person who's inspired you in the course of your life. They can be living or dead, they can be famous, or they can be someone that none of us have ever heard of because it's someone you just know personally. Just one person. I love that. That's easy for me. Uh, Dr. Omira Ortega was my undergraduate uh, applied mathematics mentor. And um, this woman believed in me more than I believed in myself. She was instrumental in setting my, my feet on the path I'm, I'm on today. She invited me into her epidemiological research group. And at a time where I didn't have even the training, I was, and she said, I will teach you everything you need to know. She tucked me under her wing when I wanted to quit. When I said, I don't have time. When I said, this is too hard. She didn't let me quit. Um, And I've always held that with me. And I, I respect and I honor her. And I, I, it is my, because of her mentoring and her coaching and the way that she fostered growth in me, that really compels me to pay that forward and offer that mentoring and coaching to others as well. That's really wonderful. And that's the magic of mentorship. When somebody steps Mm -hmm. in and steps up and says, Hey, I'd like to support you. That's really wonderful. Whether you ask them to or not, sometimes they just show up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, the third question, the penultimate question is, is there a book or even a movie? And it doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, just one that comes to mind right now that's had a, an impact on either the way you think or the way you live your life. Uh, <laughs> I'm just laughing right now because uh-huh. <laughs> I just watched it. I watch it all the time. It's the movie Secretariat. Um, I literally oh. watched it on Tuesday. Um, if you're aware of the story of this, this underdog of a, a horse mm-hmm. that ended up winning the triple crown in, in the seventies. Um, what I love about that story is nobody believed in the owner. They all wanted her to quit. They, her husband, the, the industry, all the odds were stacked against her. And she continued to step up and do the right thing. And um, ultimately, the success of what this horse did was impossible. I mean, truly impossible. And I get tears every time I watch it because it gives me hope and encouragement to continue to do the impossible, even if people say, 
I'm crazy or it's too hard. Um, it's the right thing to do. And so I, I continue to fight for those that, that need fighting for. And I believe that that will, um, there is success with that and I just don't give up. So that movie (laughs) inspires me, moves me, makes me cry. And, um, yeah, definitely powerful story. I love that. I'm eventually going to compile a list of all the movies and books people <laughs> mention on the show because it's so That's great. great. Yeah, That's I have great. mine too. It's wonderful. All right. And last but not least, what's one piece of advice you'd give 18-year-old Buffy right now, whether you think <laughs> she would listen or not? Um, <laughs> the same advice my father used to give me. What's that? And that is, um, take your time, uh, slow down, enjoy the journey. Everything has a proper timing and, um, and you'll get there, but, but slow and steady, slow and steady. Good. And do you think she'd listen? No, (laughs) (laughs) she, I'm only starting to do that now, Keith. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it took a few years. She, she, she wouldn't listen, but, um, I don't know. I would definitely try. Yeah, that's good. Well, (laughs) that's all right. My mother, my mother said, you know, as a toddler, as a toddler, I had, I had a mission and was needing to solve a mission. So (laughs) I guess that's my lot in life. (laughs) There you go. Well, Dr. Buffy Lloyd Krejci, thank you so much for gracing the airwaves. Thanks for reading from the book. Thanks for writing the book. And we're definitely going to have you back when Breakthrough comes out. So you'll have to let me know when that book, you know, hits the the airwaves and we can actually come out and talk about it. And I so appreciate you being here with us today. It's been so fun and really informative and inspiring. No, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And if you need personalized holistic career coaching to elevate your career, consider nursekeith.com. Mention the show and you can get 10% off your first coaching package. And please, pretty please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash nursekeith. We are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We're adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And Mark Cappy Speeson is always our stalwart social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote, the one I read every week by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and the inimitable Dr. Buffy the Germ Slayer saying arrivederci from? From Phoenix, Arizona. From Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Buffy, thank you so, so much. Thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you on the proverbial flip side.